Turn your Bibles to John, 1 John. 1 John or 1 John, depends on if you're from England or not. 1 John if you're from that part of the world, or 1 John if you're from America. Um, 1 John chapter 4, verse verse 18 is what will be, but I'm going to read it to get some context. Let me just read uh, verse 18. Uh, It's not on the screen. Oh, there's on the screen. Look at this. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. That's what I want to talk about today. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us in this building. Like you're, you're the audacity uh, of us starting a church on this street in 2010 with the belief that you were calling us to do it and stepping out in faith and all that you've done in this building and through our church, we thank you, God. I honestly could look back and I can't attribute it to any person or anything, it's it's been your spirit. I get these questions all the time, what was it? I'm like, I have no idea, it was the spirit of God, which sounds really spiritual and religious, but Lord, it was you, and we give you glory, thank you, God. We pray as we move across, um, across this district in Castro to the kind of edge of the mission, we're in the middle of the mission, we pray that you would go go before us, not just with us, but before us, and pave a way, and do exceedingly more than what happened in this building. Do that through us and our, our, our trust in you and our obedience to you, Lord. Do more than, uh, than our obedience deserves, God. May it be by grace, Lord. And today I pray that um, you continue to uh, drive out fear in our community, but do it through love, God. Not necessarily even through like courage or like doing leaps of faith, but more than all that love, would you drive out fear with love and do that in our community? So I pray that you go before us even this time and teach us in Jesus' name, amen. Today I wanna take a little journey with you through 1 John chapter four, verse 18. And um, I'll be like a, a guide, a tour guide with you. I want to stop at four different stops along the way. Uh, this last Friday, I was hosting some friends and their family in town and gave them a tour of the building. And I was touring them in the building. And I realized being a tour guide is the hardest job probably in the world. It's like herding cats. I had someone on their phone the whole time, two teenagers that drank way too much coffee, like, a four, like an eight-year-old that was trying to, like, it was just crazy. I'm like, come this way. Look at this building. And everybody's like laughing and hiding in the dark. I'm just going, I... I if you're a tour guide, God bless you. It is like, it is such a hard job. Anyways, but I want to give it another shot. I want to be a tour guide this morning. Um, and I want to take us through this verse, John, 1 John 4.18. It's a very popular verse. You might know it. It's probably one of the most popular verses when it comes to fear in the Bible. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. It's a verse written by St. John, the apostle. But what does it mean? A lot of us, when we read it, we moan at its goodness. We're like, Perfect love drives out fear. We're like, mmm, that. But what is that? How do we live under its power, the power of this verse? How do we live into its truth? Because it is truth. How can we um, live into this kind of love that John is talking about? How does the love, the perfect love, drive out fears that we all share? How can love drive out the fear of being emotionally attacked? We all have that fear or rejected that comes from harsh criticism? How does love drive out that kind of fear? How can love drive out the fear of change and the fear of the unknown, 
or when we're in danger or our livelihood is being threatened? How can love drive out those kinds of fears? How can love drive out the fear that's really underneath all of the anger that we experience when our ego is threatened or identity is compromised? How does love drive out these fears? Because John says that love drives out these fears. And not just any kind of love, he says perfect love drives out these fears. Some translations, some of your translations, you have a different translation, says complete love drives out fear. We'll get into that today. So this is the journey that I wanna take us on. Four stops along the way. I want to show you how this verse works theologically, neurobiologically, spiritually, and socially. So if you're taking notes, four stops. Theologically, how does, how does this verse work? Neurobiologically, you're like, well, you're gonna be way above your pig right there. <laughs> Spiritually and socially, how does this verse work? Point one, theologically, how does this verse work? So to, to do this, I have to back up and give you some context. So everyone grab your Bibles, start at verse seven. There's so much context leading up to verse 18 that we have to grasp in order to understand what's going on here. So let's look at verse seven. John writes this, dear friends, or dear beloved, because he's all about love, dear beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. That's how. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. First John is really a book about love. The word love is used here in this tiny book more than any other book in the New Testament. Any other letter, any other book, this tiny letter, love is contained more times. But here's the hardest part. When we talk about love, we don't really know what we're aiming at. When we teach on love, everyone in this room either thinks they know what love is through some experience that you have or some emotion that you feel, um, and it's really hard to get a working definition of what love is. That's the hardest part. But what if our definitions of love have no realistic quality to them? What if the way that we actually think of love actually doesn't have that much definition when it comes to biblical love? What if they are only ideals that we lock into our minds and our hearts and everyone around us keeps falling short of and we don't really know what love is. We, we think we love and we, we project love out but we keep getting our hearts broken so we don't really have a good grasp on what love means. What we really need is a very buoyant definition of love and a palpable application of what love does in our lives. 
The word that John uses over and over and over again, love, in his letter is the Hebrew Old Testament word chesed, H-E-S-E-D, chesed. The New Testament equivalent to chesed is agape. Now, I'm sure that you guys all know this stuff, right? Chesed, Old Testament, agape, New Testament. Now, this isn't a touchy, the word that, 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 that John translates love is not a touchy feeling love. It's not a, it's not a love that's like a fling type of love, like a fling, not a hot pink romantic love, not even a consumeristic love where you feel like I have to have that thing, I have to have that thing, I love that thing, I have to have that thing, whatever that thing is, it could be another person, it could be a pair of jeans, it could be a car, it could be a house, whatever that thing is, that would be more translated into like lust or eros love, which has its place, believe me, it has its place, but that's not the love here. The love agape is a, chesed and agape are a committed loyal, rugged love. The best word to describe it would be a steadfast love. So chesed and agape, the best way you translate that word is steadfast love. Steadfast is the closest we can come up to defining this word. Here's why. Steadfast strengthens and reinforces the emotion of the word. So love, oh, love is so like, it's so emotional, it's so endearing, it's so, but we need steadfast to, to strengthen it because love can, can go away. Love can be an emotion that's fleeting. It's strong one day, but not the next day. So you are in love and you ask the person to marry you and then three years down the road, you're like, I don't know if I love you anymore. That's a real thing, by the way, I've heard. No, it's a real thing. It's a real thing that happens in almost every single marriage. What do you do then? You steadfast love that person. You stay committed to that person, and the steadfastness of your love renews itself over and over and over again. But steadfastness, if, I just, if you just said, I love you steadfastly, that kind of is, is too rigid. It's too rugged. It needs kindness. This is why the word love is in the word as well, steadfast love. Steadfastness needs a kindness to it, a tenderness, an, an emotion of moving towards that person. So steadfast love is probably the best way that we can define the word chesed or agape. This is the love that says, I love you. This is the love that says, I see you, I accept you, I'm committed to you. As you are, no strings attached, I love you. And John says that God is this. Not that God has this, there's a difference. That God is this. God is this love. God is chesed. God is agape. Always has been and always will be. And not just that, but Jesus is love incarnate. Or said differently, Jesus is God incarnate because God is love. Jesus is God incarnate or Jesus is love incarnate. Same thing, both are true. Jesus acted out, showed, lived out this committed, loyal, steadfast love of God, the love of God, the chesed of God that was always true of God that we couldn't actually really, really see clearly became flesh and blood, became a baby, grew up, and showed what the Father was like, what God was like. What is this God of love like? Look at Jesus. God is love, is made flesh, 
in Jesus. And so Jesus shows us God's love. What is the greatest act? What's the culmination of this love? It's the cross. What John says, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus on the cross is the greatest act of God's love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for our sins. It was by his own volition, his own, desi- his own desire and joy, we're told in Hebrews, brought Jesus to the cross so that you and I would have fellowship with God by atoning for our sins, forgiving us the whole way through it. If you ever read the accounts of the cross, Jesus is forgiving those whom are crucifying him. Forgive them, Father, they're, they don't know what they're doing. They think they're crucifying a criminal, but they're crucifying love itself. They don't know what they're doing. And reading this book called Dominion. Have you heard of this book, Dominion? You should read it. It's a, if you want a very dense, intense book for your summer reads, like we all do, pick up this book called Dominion. The subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It's by Tom Holland, who's not a Christian. He's a historian. In the opening chapter, it just hooks you. He starts talking about the Roman Empire and with the cross in the Roman Empire and what the cross was historically. It's not a, he's not a Christian. What the cross was and how horrific it was, how the Romans were the most powerful nation in the world and they overtook all kinds of different countries and people and tribes and they brought them to Rome and made them their slaves and what's the only way you can keep slaves from all of these different areas in check is that you scare them through crucifixion. So if a slave ran away or was disobedient, you would crucify that slave publicly and would scare every slave into submission. How would you keep a country without the internet? Well, maybe the internet doesn't unite. Anyway, how do you keep a country so united around Pax Romana that's so spread out without all the technology that we have today, only one way through the punishment of crucifixion. So if you were an insurrectionist, if you went against Roman law or whatever, they would crucify you publicly. It was the most shameful thing in history. And what Tom Holland says is that it's not the fact that Jesus was God. There was all kinds of belief in that where men could become gods, women could become gods, people who were virtuous could become like God, who could become God themselves. That wasn't a thing, that was like not new. What was new was that a crucified person could be worshiped as God. That was scandalous. That was not just, he goes, I think that Christians don't even understand how scandalous this was. How actually for the first thousand years of church history, you didn't really have depictions of the cross because it was so heinous and it was still happening at the time. It's almost shameful to even bring it up. And he talks about this in a way of, he says, I'm a historian and I, and I value the, 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 the ideas of the Greeks and the Romans and the Spartans and we, there's this, been this huge uh, re- resurgence in Stoicism. And all these people like, that would go back to these Roman and Greek and Spartan philosophies and like, we want to be them. But if you actually study them historically, they were barbaric. They were horrible in the way they treated slaves, the way they treated women, and the way they treated people who are weak, horrific. He goes, why do I think that's horrific? Because of the cross. I'm not a Christian, the cross changed everything. The fact that Jesus would die weak on a cross changed the entire world. So here's a picture on the front of the book of Jesus on a cross. And he says this, 
He said it's only the power and the subversiveness and the disruption of the cross that changed our world. He said, and to coin that, that phrase, it is the greatest story ever told. This is the force that changed the world. John said God is love. The way he showed his love was become, a, the, the, become weak and die on a cross for us to show us that this is, how much, this is how much you're loved, that I would take your punishment and your sin, and I would actually go to the depths of the, the, the lowest person in society to display my love for you. This is how much I love you. I went to the cross out of love for you. Philosophers debate about this all the time. This is this love that God, as the center of God, changed the world. This is what John is writing about. So, this is, so here's what John is saying about this passage. Jesus showed what God's love was like, and therefore he showed what God was like. We know this because of his, his other writings, the biography of Jesus, the way he told it, a very mystical biography of Jesus in John. He says this at the very beginning of his first book, John. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So what John is saying there was, no one's seen God. Jesus shows up and puts flesh on God and makes God and his love known. You guys tracking? Okay, that's really important. Jesus shows us what God is like. Okay. So, in the same way Jesus showed what God was like by loving, we, his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, have to do the same. Because, and this is a trip, the same way that no one has ever seen God until Jesus revealed what God was really like, in that same way, 1 John 4.12, no one has ever seen God. Do you get what he's doing there? Jesus isn't alive anymore. You know how we saw God? You know how they saw God? Through Jesus' life. But guess what? Jesus is not alive anymore. He's with the Father. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You see what John just did there? The way that Jesus put, on, put love on flesh and showed us what God's love is like, but he's not here anymore. The Christians, the disciples of Jesus, carry on this work of showing what God is like by our Love. This is a, and he uses the word perfect. Now we gotta do some work here because this word does not translate well in our English. Perfect, it means complete. Some of your translations say complete. This word is basically the word, um, it comes from the word telos, which means uh, intention or purpose. It does not mean something without flaw. So it doesn't mean perfect love, meaning perfect love without flaw or without like, it doesn't mean perfect that you and I would think perfect. It means um, in, it reached its intended goal. It reached its intended target. It reaches um, its purpose. So here's the point. God's love was shown to you and made alive in you for the purpose of you to love one another. Does that make sense? Yes. Why did Jesus show his love to you? the Father's love to you, so his love could be in you, and then to complete that love, the intention of that love was so that you could then go love other people and thus show what God is like. That's the telos of God's love for you. That is the purpose of God's love for you. God loves you so that you can love other people. God loves you so his love can be birthed in you by his spirit, John says, and then we can love other people. And when you do, when you show Christ-like 
other-centered, rugged, loyal, committed, at the cost of yourself, love for one another, God's love in you has reached its goal. That's the goal of my, that was it. That was why I gave you my spirit. That is why I birthed my love in you. That's why I hung on a cross for you, to remove your sin, bring fellowship with me, and then send you in the world as my love bearers to show what I'm like in the world. Meaning people who don't know who God is, meaning people actually don't know who God is until they see it revealed in the life of Christians. Do you see why Christianity is so messed up right now? Do you see it? Do you see why most people are so confused and deconstructing and leaving the church? Because our love is, hasn't met its telos yet. We, this is what John's argument is. Do you see why racism is so evil in the church? Do you see why homophobia in the church is so evil? Do you see why greed in the church is so evil? Do you see why hookup culture and the way we treat each other's body in the church is so evil? See why gossip in the church is so evil? Because it's not how God loves. Now John takes the force of this argument, love, and this is our perfect love, our complete love, meaning the love shown to us by Jesus, taking into us and then shown to the world by the, by the power of the Spirit, this kind of love drives out fear. When Jesus' love is made complete, reaches its telos, we take it in, we receive it, we become sons and daughters of the living God, the Spirit of God lives in us, and then we in turn go and show our neighbor and show our city the love of Christ, that drives out fear. How? Next point, next stop in the journey, neurobiologically. As we talked about four weeks ago in my intro sermon on fear, Fear lives in the brain and releases hormones into our bodies that cause us to respond to threat or danger that we're afraid of, right? This is like wired into us, hardwired into us. Now, the strongest way to neurobiologically remove fear and anxiety from our lives is through love. See, everything that we hear or experience in life gets filtered by love or fear. Our reaction and response to the issues around us either take place out of love or fear. Love or fear are the two defining elements of a person's life. And love neutralizes fear. It took about 2,000 years, but contemporary neurobiological evidence has revealed that St. John is absolutely right, that love drives out fear. In a recent article in The Atlantic entitled Love is the Medicine for Fear, Harvard professor and podcaster, which is everything these days. That's really the, the weight of someone's resume. I have a podcast. Arthur, Arthur Brooks says that. He says in this article, Oxy, oxytocin, often called the love molecule, is our brain's natural modulator of a hyperactive amygdala. Everyone said amen, right? Now, why is this important? Here's why this is important. The amygdala is a part of the brain that detects threats and signals the body to produce the stress hormones that make us ready for fight or flight. It's what we experience when we experience fear. It's why we, our, our body, body gets flooded with this stuff. And we talked about several weeks ago, the fear response in our body is largely involuntary. And while necessary for survival for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the human species, our fear response is also maladapted to modern life. Meaning, a lot of us don't have, 
Don't live in fear of like tigers eating us out of nowhere or poisonous snakes biting us or pirates raiding us as we walk down the street. Not necessarily, but we still fear. And our body processes fear the same way it did 5,000 years ago when these threats were real. Some of us fear opening our email. Some of us fear and live with the fear of opening our text messages or getting text messages from a certain person. Some of us live with the fear that is unknown and low-grade fear that lives on the surface of everything. And the problem that is that with our body, when we fear, it produces a small dose of adrenaline and cortisol in response to our fear, and it will do that even if none of those things, email, text, or social media, can really harm us. But the same thing happens like when we see a tiger about to eat us. The same thing, same thing is released in our body. And so we get hits of adrenaline and cortisol over and over and over again. We now call them triggers and exhausts our minds and our bodies and we're exhausted all the time. So many of us, especially those who deal with a lot of anxiety and fear, have a very hyperactive amygdala. What's the way to combat that neurobiologically? Love. Oxytocin, the love molecule, is produced in the brain in response to things like eye contact and touch. When someone's face lights up when they see us, when we are shown acts of love, when we are given words of love and affirmation, all these release the hormone in the brain that literally calms down our hyperactive amygdala or our hyperactive fears. Perfect love literally drives out our fears in our brains. And there's actually evidence that an oxytocin deficit is one of the reasons for the increase in the depression, in depression during COVID, with lockdowns and social distancing. Here's the bottom line. From a neurobiological level, if you, are, if you have a loving, if you have loving contact with others and others with you, the outside world will seem less scary and threatening to you. Yes. So here's the question. Because this is true, do we need the scriptures anymore? I mean, we all know this is true from a neurobiological level. Some of you guys are going, cool, end of sermon, right? We already know. This is true, scientifically. Science, thank you, science, right? Like the billboard says from the Airbnb thing on the freeway, you see that? Thank you, science. Like, we believe in science. We don't believe in God anymore. Thank you, science, for healing us of all of our maladies, that sort of thing, right? So do we even need the Bible anymore? Because now we have science to say it's what the Bible says. We don't need the Bible because we have science now. End of sermon. Or... Is there a kind of love that John is talking about that drives out all fear, big and small, internal and external, eternal and temporal, of death and judgment, the big ones, like even the fear of punishment, because we all know no matter what your family of origin is, we ultimately fear punishment. So now let's take a third stop on our journey through this verse, third, spiritually. How does this verse work out spiritually? The late philosopher Dallas Willard was once asked to describe Jesus in one word. Describe Jesus in one word. Think about that for how you would describe Jesus in one word for a second. The philosopher Dallas Willard thought about it for a second and said, relaxed. <laughs> Which shocked everyone. You're like, relax. All the words you're going to choose, relaxed? He's like, yeah, he was relaxed. That's the best way I could describe Jesus. Willard's argument was that Jesus had so much trust in God, so much trust in the love of God and the will of God that he was relaxed. 
Think of Jesus sleeping at the, the bottom of a boat during a storm. Think of Jesus teaching on do not worry. This, this is really hard to translate, like do not worry about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. God knows these things and he closes the fields and he feeds the birds. Why are you worrying? And we hear that and we think that's like, oh, cute. But what if we really believe that? What if we really relaxed? I mean, there is, is in, in Jesus' worldview, is there really a God at the center of reality and this God being love? And because he's there and I'm here and because this God is a God of love and I am the object of that love, I don't have to fear anymore that I, I don't have to worry anymore. Jesus believed this was true. So much so that he was relaxed everywhere he went. He was relaxed. Because he trusted in the, in the love of God. That no matter what, when, no matter when the worst happens to us in life. Because some hard and even horrible things will happen to us. Even then. Nothing. Do we really believe that nothing will separate us from God's love? See, Jesus lived through life even if he's abused, ultimately crucified. Not, he, he believed the center of the universe was love and nothing can separate it from his love. As Paul said, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, do you really, can we believe, can we begin to put on this idea that if God is love and I am an object of God's love and he went to the cross to not just display his love but to make this love explode in life in our hearts that even if the worst thing happens to me, I will not be separated from God's love ever. If we could get a glimpse of, we were, my wife and I, Ashley and I were, um, uh, you know that thing where you're like, what, are, what, what series are we gonna watch next at night, like for the hour before you go to bed, you know, like, and we just didn't have anything else to watch, and so a friend of ours, a friend of mine told me to watch The Good, the good Place, The Good Place, I think. Have you ever seen this? It's about kind of heaven, but not heaven. I mean, we're only one episode in, so don't give it away. And I was, we're just watching it, I turned to Ashley, I'm like, can you imagine if, 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 we got like legitimately um, moved on to the next life and saw that in the center of it all was a God who loved us and everything was gonna be all right and then we we're placed back into our life, we wouldn't be afraid of anything ever again. Not a single thing. Because we knew at the center of everything is a God who loves us and I know where my eternity will lie. I'm not afraid of anything. This was Jesus, how he, he walked through earth, relaxed, this is how we sing that when we sing that song, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home. This is the power of Christ in me. Okay, so let's go back to 1 John 4.18 real quick. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let's stick our landing here for a second. Let's stick this. Remember that the love John is talking about is a chesed agape love that comes from God himself. Remember that that perfect in this verse doesn't mean without flaw or without error, it means complete or something that meets its intended goal or target. Remember that on a neurobiological level, it's love hormones that change the fear hormones. But the one thing that we have yet to unpack is fear. What does it mean here, fear? Let's do that in our final stop, 
Point four, socially. How does this verse work out socially? Martin Luther King, in his book, Strength to Love, that everyone should have a copy of, it's right here, on your shelf to read and reread throughout your life, has a chapter on today's text. It was actually a sermon he preached at his dad's, dad's church um, in, the, in the early 50s. And the chapter is entitled, Antidotes for Fear. And the text that he comes out of is our text today, 1 John chapter 4. And he asks this question, does love have a relationship to our modern fear of war, economic displacement, and racial injustice? Hate is rooted in fear. And the only cure for fear, hate, is love. Now, let's think, think about this with me for a second. Think about this. He says, and his argument is hate is actually rooted in fear. War is not the consequence of hate. We hate this other country. It's the consequence first of fear. We fear this other country. That's at, that's at the center of our stuff with Russia. That's the center of um, Israel and Palestine. That's at the center of any warring country. It's, it's fear. And then we hate, and then we war, and then it finally leads to deeper hate. And this happens generationally over and over and over and over and over again. Racial injustice is not rooted in hate, but fears. Fears of the loss of preferred economic privilege. Fears of altered social status. Fears of being so wrong about how we saw our history. Fears of adjustment to new situations. It's, racism is rooted in fear. The pain and animosity between the queer community and the church is not hate, it's fear. It's fear of things changing, fear of not knowing how to apply a Bible to someone's real experience, fear of getting it wrong. And of course, there's a fear on both sides of every fracture. It looks like anger and hate, but underneath it's really fear. Fear is what drives all this stuff. And then he says this, Martin Luther King says this, What's then, what then is the cure? We know the cure. God help us achieve it. Love casts out fear. This truth is not without a, a bearing on our personal anxieties. We are afraid of the superiority of other people, of failure, and the scorn or disapproval of those whose opinions we most value. Envy, jealousy, and a lack of self-confidence, a feeling of insecurity, and a haunting sense of inferiority are all rooted in fear. We do not envy people and then fear them. We fear them, and subsequently, we become jealous of them. Is there a cure for, the, for these annoying fears that pervert our personal lives? Yes, a deep and abiding commitment to the way of love. Perfect love casteth out fear. Hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. Hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. And so now our journey is complete because this verse is intended to land socially with us. This verse for us Christians is supposed to land with the way that we see our society, with the way that we see our neighbors, with the way that we see others in our church. We are supposed to, with all the fears that we have in the city that we live in, react not out of hate, but out of love. 
It's intended to land so that we cast out our fears in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our community with love, that we show what love is. This is exactly what it means by perfect love. The way that we make our love perfect is by taking the love that Jesus has shown us and show it to other people. When we do that, when we take his love in and then show it to other people, that love is now complete because that is the telos of his love. The purpose of his love is I want to show you love so you show other people love. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Boom, boom. You see that? This is the telos of our love. It's love that is not talked about, but love that is acted out. Love that has reached its intended goal. God's love was shown to you so that you would show love to others. That's perfect love. And John says that love casts out fear. When we show love to other people, when we don't react in fear, when we don't react in hate, but when we react in love, this diminishes our fear. This removes the fear of the other. This removes the fear of the unknown. This removes our fear. Finally, how and why does this cast out fear of standing before God in the final day of judgment. Because this is ultimately the, the crux of the text is uh, on that day of judgment, when he comes back, we will be able to stand before God without fear. How does it do that? How does what we just said, taking in the love of God and showing the love of God to others, how does this cast out fear to one day we stand before God on the judgment seat because we all will? and have confidence before God. How does it work that way? Here's why. John says this. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Here's how. In this world, we are like Jesus. You know how we can stand confident before the Father on that day, confident before God in the judgment seat? You know how? Because when we love like Jesus, we are like Jesus, and on that final day, the Father will treat us like Jesus. Because we've become like him and in the fact that we've taken him in, that he sees us, our identity is, is, is now hidden in Christ. And because we're working out the implications of his love in this life, we are given a crown of glory, welcomed and called into to rule and reign with God in love. Because we are like Jesus, he will treat us like Jesus. I want to end with the way Martin Luther King ends his chapter on love, he writes that, and, and the reason why I want to end here is because if we really understood that God was with us, if we really understood like at the center of it all that God is love and that, and, and because God is love, no matter what we go through, nothing can separate us from that love, we won't actually fear anything. He shares a story on a particular Monday evening following a tension-packed week that included being arrested and receiving numerous threats, threatening telephone calls. I spoke at a mass meeting. I attempted to convey an overt impression of strength and courage, although I was inwardly depressed and fear-stricken. At the end of the meeting, Mother Pollard came to the front of the church and said, come here, son. Immediately, I went to her and hugged her affectionately. Something is wrong with you, she said to me. You don't talk strong tonight. Seeking further to disguise my fears, I retorted, oh no, Mother Pollard, nothing is wrong. I'm feeling fine as ever. But her insight was discerning. Now you can't fool me, she said. I know something is wrong. It is that we ain't doing things to please you? Or is it that the white folks is bothering you? Before I could respond, she looked directly into my eyes and says, I done told you, 
We is with you all the way. Then her face became radiant, and she said in the words of quiet certainty, but even if we ain't with you, God is going to take care of you. As she spoke these consoling words, everything in me quivered and quickened with a pulsing tremor of raw energy. Since that dreary night in 1956, Mother Pollard has passed on to glory, and I have known very few quiet days. I have been tortured without and tormented within by the raging fires of tribulation. I have been forced to muster what strength and courage I had to withstand howling winds of pain and jostling forms of adversity. But as the years have unfolded, the eloquently simple words of Mother, Mother Pollard have come back again and again to give light and peace and guidance to my troubled soul. God's going to take care of you. This faith transforms the whirlwind of despair into a warm and revisiting breeze of hope. The words of a motto that a generation ago were commonly found on the wall in the homes of the devout persons needs to be etched on our hearts. Fear knocked at the door. Faith answered, there was no one there. I think it's time that we, as a church, loved without fear, like showed the city the love of Christ without fear, without fear of death, without fear of not knowing the right answers, without the fear of judgment on social media or before the Supreme Court, that we would not fear, that we would love the way Christ has loved us, that we take in his love and show what Christ is like through love and do this to where it literally casts fear out in our community, in our homes, in our neighborhood, in our city, that we would overtake and drive out fear with our love. Let's pray. Would you just open your hands in a, in a posture of receiving this love of God? If you've not received the love of God, I want to give you this opportunity. If you've not received the love that has come from the Father through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, right now, I would love for you just to pray. Just, Lord, I believe in you. I believe in you. I receive you as my Savior and my God. Forgive me of my sin. May you pour your love out upon me and make me a loving person like you. You know, it's really not the words you say. It's, it's a turning to God. It's a believing. Lord, would you make us like you? Would you keep us from being Christians in name only? Christians that say we're Christians because we show up to church or go to community group or give or whatever, but we would be Christians because they would know us by our love. I think this is what our world needs more than anything in our divided world. I pray that we would love with the rugged steadfastness of our presence, of our touch, of our eye contact, of our giving a cup of cold water and putting clothes on the naked. Make us love, Lord, and with our love, would we be fearless? Would it drive out fear in our city? Would it drive out fear in our nation? 
would you anoint us for this task, God, because we need your spirit, as this text says. We need your spirit. Fill us with your spirit, God. We can't do this in our own strength. We lean upon your power and your authority to do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.